continuing this study series, the story on the road to Emmaus out of Luke 24. Now, if you're looking for the lesson that I'm teaching in Luke 24, you don't read it specifically. You read that Jesus spent hours talking to these two disciples about how the Old Testament really spoke to the person of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. It's the Old Testament that gave definition and meaning to what Jesus was about. So we've been on this road for 15, 16 weeks now. This is a long road. And and we're at a point right now where we're looking really specifically at the tabernacle that was built at God's instruction by the Israelites in the wilderness after they had fled from Egypt. So last week, we talked about how the cosmic love story of God pursuing his people was found in the tabernacle. In the weeks before that, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat which went on top of the Ark and the things that went into the ark. This week, we want to talk about the tabernacle, but I want to get into more of the nitty-gritty. I want to look at it in in a little bit more detail than we have before. Now, as a reminder, the tabernacle that God told Moses to build was always an earthly shadow of a heavenly reality. In other words, there was, there is a true reality of a throne, a presence of God, a meeting place with humanity. But that reality is one that was foreshadowed previewed, diagrammed, if you will, by the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness. And the Old Testament prophets knew that. Isaiah was caught up in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6. He's in the holy throne room of God, not the temple courts. God's real presence is there. And the, 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 his presence fills the whole temple with smoke. And, and the seraphim, the angels, there are six of them. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there's an altar there and a sacrifice on the altar. And that heavenly sacrifice on the heavenly altar is the one that purifies Isaiah the prophet. So, so the Old Testament prophets knew that. Ezekiel knew it. In Ezekiel 40 through 43, he talked about the vision God gave him of the heavenly temple. So the earthly tabernacle and the temples that were built after that are shadows of a greater reality. I've got for my slide here a shadow picture of an airplane flying over the water about to land on some Caribbean island, which I think makes me want to go. But if I'm going there, it's not going to do me any good just to go on the shadow. I need to go on the real deal. I need to be on the airplane. So the shadow is good, It lets us know what the reality is, 
but it's the reality that has substance. So now we're going to look at the tabernacle, and this is part two of this lesson. And if part one was the cosmic story, part two, I want to ask, what does the tabernacle say about God? What does the shadow tell us is reality about God? And that's this week. Next week we'll have more, but this week we divided it up into three sections. First, the tabernacle speaks to the uniqueness of God. God is unlike any other. God is, uh, I would have said before I met my sweet wife Becky in ways that allowed her to correct me. I knew her for a long time before she would correct me. But uh, uh, I, I said to her one time, this is very unique. And she said, there is no such thing. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, unique means one of a kind. You can't be very one of a kind. If it's unique, it's unique. And she's right. But it's a wonderful illustration for us to talk about the uniqueness of God. One, unlike any other. Not more unique, not most unique. Unique, period, drop the mic. Point one. Point two, we're going to talk about the holiness of God and how the shadow shows the reality of God's holiness. And the third thing we'll cover today, God willing, if we have time, is the unity of God. Because the shadow shows us the unity that is the one true God. All right, let's start with the uniqueness. Israel comes out of Egypt, and they come out of a land that has thousands of gods. And they're going into Canaan, a land that has hundreds of gods. And God gives them a theology lesson before they go. Through Moses, God explains to himself that I am unique to any pagan god. You can take the whole field of pagan gods and God will stand out like this red flower does in that field of yellow. God is singular. He is unique. He's one of a kind. Oh, the Canaanites, they would have household gods. They would have these gods that they could put in their pocket, set in a corner of the house and pull them out when they need them. Then we read about the pagans who would worship at the high places. They would go to these places that were elevated, hilltops, and erect stones there and altars there. Because in their mind, God was up in the sky, and if they went to a high place, they'd be closer to him. They could more readily engage his attention. They'd be, hey, here I am. If you remember the Old Testament story about Elijah challenging the prophets of Baal, and in that contest between the true God and the, and the, the false idols of the pagans, the, 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 Elijah mocks the pagan gods and the pagan priests. Because... 
they, they set up a sacrifice. But instead of lighting the fire, the contest among the gods is, have your gods light the fire. And so the prophets of Baal are calling down for God to light the fire, Baal to light the fire of the sacrifice. And they're dancing, and they're frenetic, and they're doing everything they can to get his attention. And Elijah's off to the side mocking them, saying, hey, maybe he's asleep. Yell a little louder, wake him up. Maybe Baal's on vacation. You picked a bad time to do this. Maybe Baal is preoccupied. He might be eating. So maybe you just need to interrupt his life. And so the prophets of Baal are desperately trying to get their God's attention. But they do this so they've got to get close to God. And so they'll find the different high places where they can worship God. God unique, the true God is unique though. The true God says, I'm going to meet everybody in one place, the tabernacle. That's where I'll meet you, Israel. And everyone meets God in one place. That is a shadow of a greater reality. God was letting people know That there would be one place where he would meet with them. The meeting between humanity and God, there is only one door that opens up that transit way between people and God. See, the, the barrier between us and God is our impurity. So the door... The true meeting place has got to be one that deals with our sin, our impurity. And if you don't deal with that, there's no entrance into the presence of God. Impurity will not survive the presence of God. So God meets everyone in one place. If we go back to that screen again, Brent, God meets everyone in one place. And I want you to see, I've I've worked here on this. That's the place. The tabernacle is just a picture of who God is. Let me give you some scripture to back this up. I want to look at John 1, 9, 2, 19 through 21 and John 14, 6. John 1, passage, a lot of people, it starts out, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And you see how word is capitalized Because we're talking about a being, a person. He's talking about Jesus. And so in verse 14, when John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt among us in Greek is the the verb skeneo. Skeneo is, is, we get, let, let me put that into English letters. We'll do that in a different color. English letters, that's an S, and the K is like our C, and that's a long E, and that's an N, and that's an E. Then it's got an O at the ending to let you know who it is in the verb. What do you see there? 
seen. The word seen comes from the, the, the Greek word skeneo because that was the backdrop, the tent that was built in place. This is the word for tent. The word became flesh and pitched its tent among us. I mean, there's, there's a different Hebrew or Greek word for just living somewhere. It, it's katoikeo, uh, means to, to live. That's not what's used here. He dwelt, he pitched his tent among us. Why does John use that word? He uses that word because that's also the word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for the tabernacle. The tent that God had Moses and the people build. The dwelling place, the meeting place, the tabernacle. And so the word became flesh and that's the reality of the tabernacle. This is why in John 2, Jesus is being asked, what are the signs that you'll give for the stuff you're doing? And Jesus answered the the cynics and he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, the temple in Jerusalem had taken 46 years to build. And they said, how are you going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Because he's the true meeting place. So God told Israel, you pitch the tent. This is the tabernacle. This is where I'll meet you. Over time, Solomon turned it into a permanent temple. That got destroyed by the Babylonians, but rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah and ultimately Herod, and it became Herod's temple. 46 years to build. And Jesus says, this is a shadow The reality, the real temple, is my body. It's me. That's where you meet. So there's a big difference here between God meeting people in one place. Because that one place is going to be Jesus. Now let me go on further. The pagan gods, they were indifferent. They were inattentive. The pagan gods... Like the story in Elijah, they, they, they didn't really care that much about people. Oh, they might get upset. They wanted their due from people. But generally, they were more busy doing God's stuff. They had their own intrigue in their own community of gods. And so they'd fuss and fight. Oh, the Greek gods would periodically get enamored, the men especially, with... with certain earthly women. But absent capturing their attention, they generally had no regard for the doings of men. We were beneath them. And so the pagans had to do something to get the attention of the pagan gods. Sometimes things were so bad that they would even sacrifice an infant to try to get the attention of the gods. The Mesopotamian gods told the story about one of the gods who was in charge of fertility for the land. 
And she just got tired and she went to sleep. And when she went to sleep, it quit raining. And so she's asleep and it's not raining. And the rest of the gods get upset over it because this means that people aren't sacrificing to them, which they cared about because that fed not only their egos, but somehow their godness. They needed the sacrifice. So they send a bee, like buzzing bee, to sting the goddess and wake her up so that it will rain. This is the pagan mentality that God is speaking into. And God says, look, your pagan gods may be indifferent to you. Your pagan gods may be inattentive to you. But I will grab your attention. God is, we're not begging him to pay attention to us. He is begging us to pay attention to him. Let me say that again. We don't beg God pay attention to us. God begs us pay attention to him. That should change our life. In gratitude, in love, and talk about taking someone or something for granted. Mm. So, but God says, I want your attention and I'm attentive to you. But it's on God's terms. God's not going to change and become evil and corrupt and wrong and sinful and selfish like we are. He's going to transform us to be like he is. And so we look at this and we look at the tabernacle in terms of Exodus 25, 8 and 9. In Exodus 25, 8 and 9, we have the following. God tells Moses to have them make this tabernacle a sanctuary that he may dwell in their midst. And he says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. So I'm standing in a replica of a chapel that was built 1,500 years ago in 500 A.D. And I walked in yesterday because I was looking at an issue with the windows. Not yesterday, Friday. And lo and behold, Beth Moore is in here filming a a class, a, a study series that she's doing. And they had a down moment, and so I was visiting with her. And she said to me, she asked me what I was teaching on Sunday, and I told her. And she said, Exodus 25 started my love affair with God and his scripture. She said it was Exodus 25 that just grabbed my attention and drew me in because I wanted to understand more. And I thought, Boy, I can see why. And she and I were both commenting on the same type stuff. But look at this. God says, make it exactly the way I show you. Exactly the way I show you. Why? Because this is a shadow of a greater reality. 
Doesn't do any good for me to put a shadow of an airplane up there if it doesn't have any wings. You wouldn't recognize the airplane. It wouldn't be a true airplane. Now, building the tabernacle was not easy. It was a process. If we go back to the PowerPoint, Brent. Building it was a process. And so I got a model of the tabernacle sent to me by the Jerusalem gift shop. And they sent me a little brochure and I, on how to put it together. I got the brochure out and I started looking at it. Here, let me put the brochure down here on the Elmo and you can see it. Uh, IPVO. So I got it and I thought, huh. And I opened it up. And I thought, oh, mercy. Oh, these are some notes of mine. Sorry. <laughs> it was just blank when I got it. Then I opened it up again. And I thought, oh boy, this starts with step 34. That's not going to... And then I realized, oh yeah, I got this from Jerusalem. It's Hebrew. So you read it from the back to the front. So here's the, the front, which would be the back for us. And if you look at it, the instructions for this, whoops, have the following. They quote the Exodus passage that we've been using in this class. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you to the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furniture, even though so shall you make it. They quote the same passage. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, Brent, um, I tried to put it together. I'm going to show you, uh, we, we tried to video me putting this together and we'll take a moment and realize this process was done every time they moved. Every time they moved, they'd take it apart, they'd move it, and they'd put it back together over and over again. So here we go. Okay, here we go. I feel like I need some music, but uh, we'll make this work. All right. Connecting and locking the base ground, one and two. Yeah, this is not easy. Now, it was at this point that I realized this was not going to work. There's no way I'm showing this. So I called Brent and said, buddy, could you come film me putting this together and then fast forward it so that we can get through it in less than a day? And so Brent came, and you'll notice my shirt's different. Uh, it was the next day that Brent came. But um, he was able to put into fast forward what was involved in just this small model of the tabernacle. I'll give commentary as it goes along, but here it was.
there are a boatload of pieces that they had to put together in all of these different things. Now, I'm just gluing little mini ones, but it's still taking quite a bit of time to do it. And all of these are rings that are going to go on the side of the, uh, the tent enclosure so that it could be carried more readily. And then we've got to add some... Ah, 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 break those out. Those are tent pegs. Now, I'm putting them in pre-drilled holes. It's not bad. Can you imagine having to drive each one of those into wilderness, caliche, and rock without modern tools? But they would have to drive all of those tent pegs and then erect the tent. Um, I had to add some inserts to keep it square. I don't know how they did it. But God gave exact directions for all of these pieces. Every one of these pieces are defined uh, and built. Now, that's the altar that's getting built there that I'm putting together and uh, gluing it, letting it rest for a moment. Then the altar goes there. Then you got to be able to get up to the altar. So we build a little ramp that gets you up to the altar. Then you got to have the sheep that are getting ready to be sacrificed So you get the racks up for the sheep and put the sheep there to be sacrificed. Then you've still got to do something with the entrance. And so because something very important goes on here. This whole area is not one where you just walk around. This area is set apart. It is its own area of holiness. And so they had to erect all of these poles. And on the top of these poles, they had to put... Elmer's glue. No, I don't know how they did it. And uh, uh, then they have to put these little things that are going to hold, ultimately, the, the skins, the goat skins that have been sewn together to go around as a tent covering. But before that, let's go ahead and add a few more things. You've got the, uh, yeah, the, what blocks the entrance to the holy and the holy of holies. You've got these little rods that go through there to help hold everything. And I think that those rods were uh, uh, a challenge, but also something that would help them carry it because they would disassemble this every time they moved and they'd have to be able to carry it. And so they would make the coverings and the coverings had very specific things that had to be on it. And then they would put this fence around the whole thing that was made out of goat skin. Mine's made out of ribbon, but maybe it's goat-colored ribbon. And uh, uh, ultimately, that's what they would do. And when it was all said and done, with a little help from Mark Wilkie on the stitching, you've got the tabernacle. This is the process that would be built. Now, we've left this in a way where I can take it in the next week I will take the lid off of the tent so that you can more readily see. Maybe if I put it down here and uh, check the IPVO out. We want to be able to see more readily the, the actual enclosed tent that would go in here. And so we'll be able to take that off and show you these parts next week. But this whole process, down to the lambs, down to the altar... This whole process is something that details a greater reality than simply some portable worship venue. 
That's not what it was. So that's why Moses is told, build it this way, because God is trying to grab our attention, but it's very important that it's on his terms, not ours. Because the terms with which God speaks to his people are the terms of Jesus. But even Jesus himself, Jesus didn't come into this world um, with us striving to get his attention. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Sarah had offered to come up and sing that for us, but I was told her we didn't have time this morning, otherwise she would so be here. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the Zacchaeus story is a marvelous story. If we look at the Elmo for a sec, Brent, um, the Ipivo. The Zacchaeus story, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. But the stunning part to me is Jesus wanted to see Zacchaeus. Are we able to get the Ipivo up? Uh, yeah, there it is. Thank you. So look at this. Zacchaeus works really hard. Jesus comes to find Zacchaeus, though, and Jesus looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come down here. I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus thought he was seeking Jesus. Jesus, in fact, was seeking Zacchaeus. And Jesus made this point in verse 10. The whole reason he came, the Son of Man came, to seek and to save the lost. Now, we talk a lot about Jesus as a Savior, But we don't often talk about Jesus as a seeker. God's not, again, waiting for us to seek his attention. God is aggressively seeking ours. God wants us. Look at this passage in Revelation. Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea. And and in the process of speaking to that church, Jesus says, Behold... I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in to him and eat with him and him with me, he with me. Jesus comes to our door and knocks. It's not, oh, what are we going to do to get God's attention today? We need his help. We need his help. It's God saying, what do I need to do today to get your attention God is seeking us out. God grabs our attention on his terms, though. That's the key. Now, that's some of the uniqueness of God. There's more, but I want to move and talk about the holiness of God for a bit. God is holy. The Hebrew word for holy is kadosh. The Greek word is hagios. Holy means set apart, unlike any others. Unique in a positive way. God is unique. He is holy. He's not like you and me. He's not like what we imagine God should be. A lot of us think of what we want God to be. In fact, I've heard a lot of people say, well, I wouldn't worship that God. That's not my God. The question is not who do we think God is. The question is who is God? 
God is utterly holy. He, he, he is a brightness that we can't fathom. And we can see the utter holiness of God in these passages. We can see the utter holiness of God in the, in the Exodus 25 passage where he gives the instructions for building. Look what he says. He says, let them make me a sanctuary. See that word sanctuary? The word sanctuary in, in Hebrew is a mikdash. It's, it's, um, it is the word holy with an M stuck on the front. A mem, which means place. So it's a holy place, literally. A mikdash. It, it, a mikdash. It, it, um, it's kadosh, the word for holy, with a m in front. This is just, let them make me a place that's holy, separated unto itself, unique in a good way. If we look at um, Exodus uh, 26, 33 through 34, God's talking about how they're going to build this. And he says, you're going to hang a veil from clasps. Those clasps were the things I was punching out. And you're going to bring the ark of the testimony there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. The kadosh place from the kadosh kadosh place. The most holy. Then you're going to put the mercy seat on the Ark of the Testimony, in that most holy place. There is something about God that is utterly unlike any other being, period. He is utterly holy. And that's what uh, makes him stand out. Let me tell you where else we are here on this. We see in this shadow the utter purity of God. So he's utterly holy. By the way, the reason that the tabernacle had the fence of goatskin all the way around is because nobody's allowed to wander in. This is a holy place. This is set apart from all the rest of the camp. God's here. God is not just someone that, that the Israelites were taught to be able to pell-mell randomly go in. And, 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 and they were not to take God lightly and cavalierly. So this is a holy place. But even that, within the holiest of the holies, it's covered with a second layer of covering. And not even all the priests got to go in there. We'll talk more about that next week. But the utter purity of God is also shown here. So there were lamps that were to be lit. And the lamps were lit to show that when you come into the presence of God, it illuminates your world. We find in the presence of God light that illuminates your world. But the Israelites were told, don't just stick any olive oil in those lamps to burn. Look at the lamps according to Exodus 27, 20 and 21. 
you will command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light. Pure beaten olive oil. Pure beaten olive oil for the light. That a lamp may be regularly, may regularly be set up to burn. And this is to be tended from evening to morning before the Lord. A statute forever to be observed throughout their generations. People were to know forever that God is the light. Worshiping and being in the presence of God is the light that shines and illuminates the darkest night. And will throughout all eternity. But it's a pure light. And so you don't just take... Look, olive oil was a source for most of their lamp-burning oil at the time. You get the olives from the olive tree. You pound them and ground them. You don't really pound them. They're too hard to pound. You've got to take heavy rocks and you grind them. But they let out oil. Now, we live in 21st century uh, world and we know EVOO, extra virgin olive oil. That's from the first pressing. That's the purest. This was to be EVOO. This was extra virgin olive oil. But it was even more different then because now we have machines that do this and all these screens that filter out impurities. They had to make sure that this olive oil in the lamps was not olive oil that had sticks, stems, rudiments of the seeds and the pits. None of that. It had to be pure because, why, the other wouldn't burn? No, the other burned fine, though it would smoke a little bit. This is pure because God is utterly pure. And if that light is to represent God, it's got to flow from utter purity, nothing less. God's not just utterly pure, God is utterly present. This was a a, a tent that was made to be assembled and disassembled and taken everywhere Israel goes. To be the center of camp everywhere Israel goes because God is utterly present. And last thing I will tell you is God is utterly love. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but not clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the fourth generation. Sin still has an effect, even if God forgives us. You sin, it will have an effect. That's the whole reason God doesn't want you to sin. It's not what you're made for. It's not what you're meant for. It's not good for you. But you can't talk about the utter love of God, if we get the PowerPoint back on the screen, without talking about Jesus. Jesus is all these things. Those were pictures of the reality in Jesus. Jesus is utter purity. One in whom there was no sin. One who fulfilled the law of God. 
every dot. Jesus said, I didn't come to take away the Torah. I came to fulfill the Torah. Jesus shows the utter presence of God because with Jesus, he says, no longer do you need the temple made with hands. The temple is the body of Christ. And when you walk in fellowship with Jesus, when Jesus is your your Lord and your master, God says, and Jesus says, that he will dwell within your hearts. We have God's presence. But Jesus, in, in in another way, was the special presence of God. The unique presence of God on earth. And of course, Jesus is utterly love. So with Jesus, we see the reality of a great deal of special symbolism here. But I want to go beyond the holiness of God, and I want to talk for a moment about the unity of God. Now, this is an unusual subject. But if you take, for example, these goat skins. Let me show you something here. Fascinating. This is Exodus 27, verses 9 through 13. And this is God explaining how the courtyard is going to be made. All right? You'll make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, you'll have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. It's 20 pillars and their 20 bases of bronze shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. Likewise, for its length on the north side, you've got a hundred cubits long, same thing on the pillars and cubits, and for the breadth of the court, hangings for 50 cubits. The breadth of the court on the front to the east will be 50 cubits. God gives precise measurements for this, but then what he says is, you're going to hang around the whole thing goat skins that you're going to tie together so that this is only one piece that goes all the way around the court. The definition of God's presence is a definition that is defined and fenced in with one piece of cloth, not many, because there is a unity to God. God instructed them that they are to say every day, multiple times a day, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad, Echad, one. Hear Shema, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, Adonai, the Lord, Elohenu, our God, Adonai, the Lord, Echad is one. There's one God. Now a lot of people say, well, you're a Christian. You, you believe in tritheism. You think that there's three gods. No. There's one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God is one. He makes it clear by the way he has them build the... the, 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 the look, let's make sure we got this. I said it, but let's read it. Coupled five curtains to one another. This is Exodus 36. The other five curtains he coupled to one another. Then he made loops of blue on the edge, the outermost curtain of the first set, 
outermost curtain of the second set. And he made 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the edge of the other curtain. The loops were opposite one another. And he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to the other with clasps. Why? So the tabernacle was a single whole. Pieces that were each individually pieces, each individually real and one and complete, but pieces that properly were all together one whole. God is three persons in one. And people say, well, that doesn't make math sense. And I beg those people to realize if God can be described, if a being that can create this entire cosmos, that can know the thoughts of eight billion people on this planet right now, that goes out and seeks eight billion people. I got, and I use the same people for examples every week because we only have a few people in here, uh, but Daniel's in here. Daniel is like studying crazy for the MCAT. I mean, like, not, oh, he spent an hour today studying for the MCAT. I mean, like, over and above and beyond. We've got a God that, like, doesn't have to study for the MCAT. He knows this stuff cold. He doesn't have to study for the LSAT. He doesn't have to study for the GRE. He knows the thoughts of every person. He knows it all, and he's known it all historically, and he knows it all into the future. You find me an entity like that. And I'm going to tell you it's not just a human on supersized scale. It's not just a supercomputer. God is a being with morality, with personality, with with, uh, uh, power. God is a being that we can't fathom. So he's tried to explain himself to us in ways that it's important we grasp. And one of them is, is that he is one. And yet, we see him in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, next week what I'd like to do is talk not so much about the elements, though I've saved some of the elements of the tabernacle for next week, but I want to talk about the service that went on in the tabernacle. Because the service that was a part of this construction gave meaning then and gives meaning now. But it's all wrapped up in the idea that the tabernacle is an earthly shadow of a heavenly reality. Before we go, I got a takeaway for you. Here's my takeaway. Um, if we begin to understand what God has done and the lengths to which God has pursued us and the desire He has to reveal Himself to us. So that we who behold him in his glory can be transformed. Then we begin to understand a little bit more of the background of the prayer that Paul had for the Ephesians. And I want to put that up here. Because this is my prayer for you. 
and my hope that we take away from today. Paul said, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is never about head knowledge. This is a thousand years in the planning for God's revelation in Jesus, which then becomes a revelation in us that we begin to understand he's not like any other God. He is unique in his holiness and he's unique in his pursuit of us and he's unique in his love for us and when we grasp that and we see that fulfilled in Jesus we behold his glory in ways we never could before there's a ton I didn't have time to get to and we always put up here the email information if you want to email us at info at lanierfoundation.org Uh, I'll readily confess some of this stuff, uh, many people in our class, we've already given copies of the Torah devotional book that that, uh, we've got. Uh, If you don't have a copy and you want it, just email us. We're glad to send it to you. Um, uh, Want more at biblical-literacy.org. If you want to be on our email chain to get our daily devotionals and to get our announcements or want prayer or anything, you can email us at either place. And we'll be glad to reach out to you because you are important to us. May God bless you and keep you as you continue to walk with us, I hope, in our biblical study while living with coronavirus. See you next Sunday.